All right, welcome, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good middle of the night where for all you insomniacs who are out there watching us later on online, hey, wherever you are, um, I'm glad that you joined us. We are so thankful that you took your time to come here. Uh, you guys who are here in person are always my favorite, just so you know. I love seeing your faces out there. It's funny, I look out and I go, well, this is where they used to sit, and this is where they used to sit. It's all people who I know through the, through the uh, miracle of, of social media that they're on vacation or they're traveling, and I go, okay, I get it. But I look out, again, all of you who are here, I'm so thankful that you're here. And again, wherever you are, we love that you joined us. Um, we are in a series, uh, it's called Blameless. It's called Blameless. It's a study in the life of Job. It's so much more than just the book of Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, or, or maybe you've never even read it, but you've just been kind of told some anecdotes or different things about the life of Job, um, sometimes it's really easy to get a skewed impression of what's going on there, and maybe not a full picture of what God is trying to show us through the book of Job. So this, this is why we're in it. If you missed uh, last week, last week was when we kicked off the series. If you missed it, Go back and catch it. You can catch it on Facebook, on, you, on our YouTube channel, uh, right through our website, many different ways. But go back and catch that because it kind of lays the groundwork of what's, what's happening. I'm not going to go so in-depth into the background of it. I want to take all the time we can to talk about what's going on here in the chapter. I will tell you, some of you, especially Ann and John, who I know are traveling right now, if you're catching this later, um, in the past, what I've tried to do is do like a whole chapter of a particular book. There's way too much going on in the book of Job to do that. So today, just so you know, everything, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, that's what we're going to talk about today. And that's it. Verse 6 on, we're going to talk about that next week. So again, if you're at home, you want to jump ahead. 6 through, I think about 13 or so is where we'll be next week. But it's important that we take the time to lay the groundwork on what's going on here. We need to get our minds in the right place. The book of Job is so much more than this downer, dark, negative, oh, bad things happen. And it's just a, a downer of a book. I think that it's foundational for our ability to understand God's heart as best we can as humans and to really be able to trust in him. It's foundational for our ability to trust in him when we see bad things happening in the world around us because bad things have always happened and will always continue to happen. So how do we explain this in light of a loving God if we consider him sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful? How do we reconcile this idea with all these bad things that happen around us, pain and suffering, that happens not only to us, but people that we care deeply about. Can we still trust in God? Can we still love him for who he is? Not for what he gives to us, but for, what, for who he is. Can we still do that? In the book of Job, I'll give you a spoiler alert, the book of Job does not answer all of those questions. In fact, it seems to bring up more questions than it answers. Again, at the core of it is how could a loving God allow? That's the basic question. How can I trust in him? Should I trust in him? And all these questions are based on what we see around us. And if we don't understand God's heart behind it, it's very, very easy to fall into the world and say, I see bad and evil happen everywhere. I see people who profess to be Christians, being the perpetrator of bad and evil. And so therefore, how can, how can I trust in this God? So let's, let's get into this. You know, um, there's a college professor, Wheaton College. His, prof his name is John Walton. And he tries to explain the book of Job like this. He says this, the book of Job is focusing on God, on how God works in the world. Okay not teaching us about how things work in heaven. I think that's an important realization. There are things happening in heaven, in God's heart and mind, that we will never have the capacity to understand. And we need to understand that. 
first and foremost. But then we can get our minds around the way that he works in the world, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to get into it. In fact, there's a couple, couple scriptures just real quickly that I want to share with you. One is through Proverbs, Proverbs 25, verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. It just shows us how important it is that we search for these truths. And then when we search, Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. There's so much that we don't know. There's much that we can't know. But when we call to him and we search diligently for these things, he will unveil to us what we need to know. So on that note, before I get into the actual core of the teaching, I just want to take a moment and just have us pray together. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, that your, that your word, although sometimes it seems like it's hidden beyond what we can comprehend, if we pray, if we search, you promised to reveal those things to us. And so, Lord, that's what I pray for today, that you would reveal through me, through the study of your word, that you would reveal your truth for your people and that we, we, we would begin to just see a glimpse of your heart in all of this and that we would begin to know more and more each day your heart for us and so that we wouldn't be tempted to question your heart ever but that we would always have a foundation of knowing your love is always hidden in your sovereign purposes. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, hey, remember, if you remember, if you were here last week, you remember. If not, uh, if you go back and listen to the podcast or to watch it online, then after that you'll remember what I said last week, which was there might be more than one way to look at the book of Job. The traditional ways that we've thought about it, that we've looked at it, there's more ways, I think, that we can look at it. And this is, what, this is the crux of what we're going to study here today. The question is, can you trust in God despite your circumstances? Can you trust in him, especially considering your circumstances? In a time like this of COVID or looking at riots and different things that are happening around the world, can you still trust that God cares about you? and about what happens in the world. And he's not unaware or powerless to do anything about it. He is all-powerful, and what's happening may well be used by God for your good. This is what we're going to talk about. Despite what your eyes are telling you, can you trust in him when things don't make sense? When absolutely things don't make sense. And more, there's more in our lives that doesn't make sense than does. Am I right? I, we can probably agree on that. So if you have a hard time trusting in God when you can't figure out his purposes in your mind, it's going to be difficult. We need to be able to understand. So that's where we are. So last week, in fact, through the lead up to this series, I've gotten comments here and there about people like, why why are we taking the time to study Job? Why can't we go into something a little more New Testament, a little more fluffy and feel good and, and maybe like that? Why are we spending so much time in Old Testament Scripture? And here's what I want to share with you. Last week, I talked about how Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Okay, now we know Genesis goes all the way back to the creation of the earth, but Genesis wasn't written down until it was given to Moses much later Job is actually the first book that it, it happened, and then it was written down almost at that same time. We can argue, scholars argue, about the exact timing of things, but it's, it's very, very old. So you might wonder how and why we study such an Old Testament, Old Covenant, dark, sad, old book of the Bible. Did I say old enough? You get what I'm getting at. How can, we, how can it be relevant for us today? What we go through now, how can that be relevant? In fact, there's some very well-known preachers, very well-known, who say we shouldn't study the Old Testament at all. It's like, that's, that's old, that's old covenant thing, we don't even need that. Turn the page, let's move on. 
I don't agree with that. And as we go through this, I hope you'll understand. One of the ways that I think will help us understand this is by looking. So that's all the old stuff, right? Job, old, old, old. Let's look at the last book of the Bible, okay? Arguably the newest book of the Bible, a New Testament, new covenant, victorious, and so new that most of it hasn't even happened yet, book of the Bible. Absolutely brand new, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's look at that and compare it to the book of Job. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says this. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. That's amazing. That's victorious. That's how, that's the consummation of the kingdom happening right there. It's all coming and it's all done in victory. But how was the accuser of our brethren thrown down. Does anybody remember? How does Satan ultimately get defeated? It's in the very next verse. The accuser defeated, Revelation 12, 11. We have that one on screen. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. You look at that scripture right there, And that is Job in a nutshell. Isn't it? That is Job in a nutshell. They overcame even when faced with death and the worst trials you could go through. He placed God above everything else. And through that was able to have a testimony that we're talking about here today. How Job was able to persevere. In other words, the book of Job ties the entirety of Scripture together. It ties it all together, the ever-present battles with the accuser, the difficulty of living righteously in the face of adversity. Can you live a righteous, blameless life when bad things happen to you, or do we immediately revert back to the fleshly ways? The power in being able to maintain this righteousness in the midst of an attack, whether it's that daily attack or just in general things happen You know, is it a season of attack for you? Hanging on to that ability to live a a righteous life as much as we can in our flesh, but be blameless through that time helps us to maintain a testimony that will be damaging to the enemy's purpose. So Satan wants to ruin your testimony. It's clear. If that's one of the major components to how he is ultimately overcome, he wants to ruin that testimony. He wants people to look at you and your life and say, well, I don't know Christ, and I'm going through just as much crud as you are, so why would I bother? If he can take that away from you, and more importantly, not what you're going through, but your response to it, then he's won a victory. But all that is Job in a nutshell. That's the book of Job that we're going to be talking about. And it proves our desperation, our desperate need for a Savior in Jesus. And he is woven throughout all of this book. And we're going to pull that out as we go along. So let's jump in. Chapter 1, let's jump right into Job. The very first thing that this book does is it establishes Job's character. And we need to understand that. If we don't have an understanding of Job's character, it's very easy to start falling into what we'll see in future chapters. What his friends do is saying, there must be something going on. There must be something dark and hidden in your life that's causing all these things to happen to you. Therefore, it's very important to establish Job's character right off the bat. And we're going to go, we're going to do that too. If you think, if you're in that camp that you think Job had to have done something, there's something in his, in his background, in his heart that's causing this to happen to him, if you think that, you're not alone. Job's very good friends think that too. They know him almost better than anybody, and they accuse him of having something hidden in their heart. Even though they've never seen it, the accusations still come, and they are relentless. But Scripture does not give us any room to doubt Job's morals, not even for one verse. Because it starts out, Job chapter 1, verse 1. 
There was a man in the land of Uz. If you remember, I showed you the map last week. Uz is kind of, um, kind of southeast, if you will, of where Israel is modern day, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That doesn't give you a lot of room to accuse Job, right? It really doesn't. Blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil, meaning, because we find out he's a businessman, so it means he's an honest businessman. We see him being a good parent to his children. He's a good husband. He's faithful to God. He's respected in his community. He's repentant when necessary. He's all these things. Now, blameless, to be clear, does not mean sinless. Blameless and sinless are not the same thing. Blameless means living a life of integrity. There was only one who was sinless. We can aspire to be blameless. And this is what Job did. Job chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, moving on. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. There's a lot here to chew on that just tells us a bit about who Job is. First of all, seven sons, three daughters, ten children. That in itself is a sign of blessing, kind of a sign of prosperity. Because not only were you blessed with them, but you had enough food to feed them and to house them. And then they could also, at that time, they could work for you in the family business. So that is a sign of of prosperity. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, which provided not only wool for clothing, but, but meat when necessary, some milk. They would provide those sorts of things. 3,000 camels. Now, they didn't eat camels. They didn't use camel milk or anything like that. They were used strictly in Job's modern day, we call it his trucking business, probably. He was probably a trader, an importer, exporter. John, could you use camels in, in your business instead of trucks? <laughs> But that's what they did then. So this meant in his placement geographically where he was, he was kind of on a crossroads between Egypt and the other trading areas, major trading areas. And so he was the one who provided the transportation through his area. So those camels made him some serious money. 500 yoke of oxen, so a yoke is two. That means 1,000 oxen, which were then used for plowing ground, primarily was agricultural, so... He had probably had good fields, 500 female donkeys. Now, this is, this is something that is not well known, that donkey milk was a delicacy at that time. So 500 female donkeys would provide very much, would provide a lot of milk, which sold at a very handsome price at those times. So that was probably a real significant source of his wealth. And very many servants, and that man was the greatest of all men of the East. By the men of the East, what he's talking about here is anything east of the Jordan River. Pretty much anything to the east of of Palestine. It was considered, that's where the heathens live. Okay, Anything to the East. So he was, it's establishing that he um, was not a Hebrew descendant, that he was a Gentile for sure. But he was a great man in that area. So, Job chapter 1, verse 4. See, we're almost done with all of our scripture for today. See how quickly we're moving? Job chapter 1, verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Remember, seven sons, seven days. Each day of the week, their, their sons would travel around from house to house, and they would have a feast at each brother's house, a little rotating feast. It's a great sign of just a close-knit family. The, the, the siblings got along together. The daughters, the sisters, they either lived with Job at home or maybe they lived in their, own, in their own homes, but they would all come together each day at a different house and just have a feast together. This is fantastic. This is, again, a sign of just a, a close-knit family. There's no sign of anything going wrong there. They weren't carousing and burning uh, uh, idols and things. They weren't doing any of those sorts of things. 
They were just feasting together, which is, which is a good thing to do. Job chapter 1, verse 5. The last verse in Job we're going to talk about today. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, meaning one week, right? Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, this is, Job's, this is how good of a parent Job is. Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Every single week. The phrase send and consecrate more accurately means send for. So he would send for them. They would come one by one to his home, to, to dad's home, and he would pray over them. He would offer a burnt offering for them on the off chance that they did something to offend God. This is the kind of father he was. Now, quick translation issue. Those of you who want, um, who like to study, who like to go into the Hebrew or different translations, that word uh, where it says cursed God in their hearts, there are some translations where that word cursed actually says blessed. This can cause us a little confusion if we're just looking at Scripture. What that comes from, remember I told you Job was written in an ancient, ancient language and then transfer, translated into Aramaic and then, and then into Hebrew and then into Greek from there and then into English. And what happens is when the Hebrews translated that word, which accurately is cursed in what we would call cursed, they changed that word to barak, which means to bless. Okay? They changed it because of this, of this desire they had. We don't even want to write down that it was possible that Job or his sons could be cursing God. So we're going to change that word to bless. Okay? Doesn't mean it changed the meaning of it. The meaning was still there. The meaning was still well understood. It's one reason why uh, Jews most often today don't even write out the word God. It's G blank blank, if you've seen that. It's just a thing done out of respect. We don't even want to write the word that they could curse God. I only say that it's not for your theology, but it's only so if you have a translation or you want to study and you see that word blessed, anytime you see something that doesn't make sense, look at it closer. Because when you look at it closer and really study it out, then it starts to unfold and make sense to you. Don't just skip over it. So, Point being, though, in this whole scripture, Job is offering sacrifice based on his assumption that his children may have sinned. This is what a good guy Job is. Now, quick note on Job's sacrifice. If you're, if you're a student of the Bible, and I'm trying to ignite this, this passion in everybody to kind of be a student, at least at some level, of scripture, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, how did Job even know to do that? Because didn't the sacrificial system really come into place with Moses on Mount Sinai? And this was before that. So how did Job even know to consecrate, to pray over and offer burnt sacrifices for his children? How did he even know that? When it wasn't until much later when Moses was given all that directly by God. Let's think about this for a minute. So again, the sacrificial system was not formalized until Mount Sinai and Moses, but there was so much precedent for the sacrificial system going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Okay, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, follow along with me now. We know about the original sin. We know about the apple and the temptation and all these things, right? But what was Adam and Eve's response? They realized they were naked. They realized they had sinned and fallen short, what's their first response? Well, we need to make some clothes for ourselves and cover up our shame. So they go and they get the fig leaf, right? All the pictures that we've seen of them dressed in fig leaves, and they hide from God because they're embarrassed, right? What's God's response to this? Okay, we know that there's much more dialogue that happens, but here's the important thing for our study. God kills an animal and gives them skins to wear. What this means, if you think about it, is that their efforts, like we, we have sinned, we know it, we need to do something to cover this up. Let's go make some fig leaf clothing for ourselves. God is saying right there, that's not enough. Your efforts to cover your own sin is not going to be enough. 
So an animal was sacrificed for them to give them clothing then to cover what they saw as their shame and their sin. So that's going all the way back. That's Genesis 3.21. You can read about that on your own. That's the first sacrifice that's given. And then you forward to Cain and Abel, their sons. Okay, we know that Abel offered a lamb while Cain offered grain. Okay, which made sense because one was a farmer and one was a rancher, so to speak. So that's what they had, and they provided the best. That's Genesis 4.4, by the way, if you want to catch up on that. But how did Abel know? How did Abel know what the correct sacrifice was? Because we know that the grain offering was rejected at that point. You ever thought about how he knew? Let's move on. I'll answer that in just a minute. Then you go to Noah. Fast forward to Noah. Also in Genesis, Genesis 8.20, you can read this. Now, the flood had happened. They had come to Mount Ararat, and the, the flood waters had started to, re, to recede, right? And then they're finally able to open the ark and let the animals out, okay? What's the first thing that Noah does? He offers a sacrifice. The first thing that he does is offer a sacrifice. Genesis 8.20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, Okay, so going all the way back, we see that sacrifice was happening. This idea of burnt offerings, the sacrifice for atonement was happening all the way back then. See, God was speaking to these people. It's the only way they would have known. God was speaking to them. And in fact, if you read scripture, God, you see the Lord God actually speaking audibly to these people. They were, they had communion with him. See, it's very easy to go back to the Garden of Eden, and what many of us have been led to believe and taught even is that at the Garden of Eden, at the original sin, when Adam and Eve failed and they were driven from the garden, God did this. When you guys get your act together, then come see me. And he turned his back on them. That is not how that happened. God didn't say, you're dead to me because you failed. God continued to speak with and to reach out and to guide his people again and again and again. He didn't turn his back. Yes, they lost access to the Garden of Eden, but that didn't mean God didn't still want to be with them. He did, and he spoke to them on a regular basis. We see it over and over and over again, all the way back since the beginning, that very first sin, though, our need for a Savior, our need for Christ has been foreshadowed all the way from the very beginning. There was a penalty to be paid for sin. It had to be. But it wasn't God's plan to be separated from his kids. We'll find out here in just a minute how that comes about. This idea was communicated directly to God's chosen people. God spoke. I I don't know for sure that he spoke to everybody all the time, but he sure spoke to his chosen people, Adam, Cain, Noah, Job, Abraham, Jacob, all the way up to Moses, heard audibly from God, spoke with God. That was God's plan. And then what happens? During the Exodus... Okay. The people of Israel, are, they're wandering the desert. They come to Mount Sinai. Okay. We know most of us are familiar with the story. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to speak with God, to receive the law, to receive guidance from the Lord. And the people are down below looking up at the mountain. And what are they seeing? They're seeing lightning and thunder and the ground is shaking. And it looks like this awesome, fearsome sight, right? Moses comes down from the mountain. Anybody remember what the people say to him? Here's what they say. Exodus 20, verse 19. Then they, they meaning the people, said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. This is the point where the people said, We don't want face-to-face contact with God anymore. We don't even want to hear his voice anymore. You listen for us and come to us. Anybody ever have a sibling and something bad goes wrong and you're like, 
you go talk to mom and dad. I'll wait here. Let me know what they say. It's just like that. They know that they've sinned. They know that they have fallen short. And they are fearful and say, you be our intercessor, Moses. You be our our go-between. We no longer want to be that close to God because we know we have fallen so short. Church, that was their decision. God didn't say, you're dead to me. I can no longer be near you. They decided, we don't want to be that close to you. And so God fulfilled their wish. They knew they were carriers of the covenant. Yes, we'll talk more about this later. God chose them not because of how special and perfect they were. God chose them, I think, in part because he knew how much they'd mess up. And his covenant with the people of Israel illustrates how good and merciful he is. We're going to talk about that more in coming chapters. You can read Deuteronomy 5 if you want to know a little bit more about that. But how much is that like many of us today? That is like so much. We fear the wrath of God because we know that we're unworthy. But even knowing that Jesus Christ is our mediator, he's our intercessor, and he will plead our case before the Father, he's paid the price, all those things that we've been taught, we still think, somehow I messed up too bad. I still messed up too bad. And if the Father really knew what I had done, he'd be angry with me. So many of us are unable to just fully accept what Christ did for us on the cross. But now, back to the law. After after the law was given, so Moses comes down and he's been given given the volumes. Read Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 7. Those seven chapters talk all about the sacrificial system and exactly how it's to be done. In essence, what I picture is God saying, hey, I just want to be with you. You're my people. I love you. I just want to be with you. But if you insist on having some kind of way to work for it, some kind of thing you can do to atone for it, I'll give you what you want. Here's seven chapters of how to prepare and present the accurate offering. Now, in the time of Job and before that, all they had were burnt offerings. But there are many different kinds of offerings that are laid out to Moses here. The first one, burnt offerings. Again, we talked about that. What it, what it signifies is appeasement for sin and complete surrender to God. Surrender to him and commitment and devotion to God. That's a burnt offering, okay? formalized again in Leviticus when it's given to Moses here. Then there's a grain offering though. A grain offering signifies thanksgiving for the first fruits, for the harvest. Then there's a peace offering, which is thankfulness for a specific blessing, usually for peace among nations, but a specific blessing that's given to you or a specific prayer answered. A sin offering is made by the one who had sinned to cover or atone for those sins, right? Usually an unintentional thing or they've somehow been made unclean and that's an effort to purify them. Then there's a guilt offering. A guilt offering is made by you when you feel you've wronged someone. And it's a way to atone for that. That's what a guilt offering is. All these things were set up as a response to the people of Israel saying, it can't be that easy. We don't want to just hang out with you because, frankly, we're afraid of you. We've seen the lightning bolts. Can there be some to-do list, some task that we can do to make it right? See, as human beings, we're so much more comfortable with, give me a list and I'll do it. God just wants to be with you. And with the new covenant of Jesus, we're no longer under that sacrificial system at all. Thank you, Lord, for that. Because what a burden that would have been to fulfill that exactly as it's laid out. And if it wasn't done exactly right, it was not acceptable. That's not God being a jerk, people. Understand this. This is him trying to explain to us, look, I've given you seven chapters of exactly how to do this, and you still can't do it right. So it's not about that. 
But back to Job, this is that burden, that burden of offerings and appeasement and, and devotion to God. That's a, a, a responsibility that Job took up willingly on behalf of his kids, acted as an intercessor for his children and offering atonement for their sins. All they had to do is just show up. Does that sound like us today? All we need to do is just accept the atoning work of Christ. We don't have to do anything for that. We just need to accept it. And when you accept it, then the fruit comes from that. But we see this with Job's kids. They just showed up and he did all the, all the atoning for them. But bottom line is all this together serves up this picture of a man who is upright and he is righteous and he is blameless and he has done nothing to bring these things that are about to come his way onto him. He is as close to blameless as you can get. Which now brings us to our theology teaching for the day. There's this issue. It's kind of a sticky issue, a, a, a topic of theodicy. If you've ever heard the word theodicy before, okay? Theodicy is a study, it's a branch of theology that seeks to explain why bad things happen to good people. Okay, I've vastly oversimplified it, but in essence, that's it. Why do bad things happen to good people? If, if God is all-powerful, why does this happen? Is it because God wants it to? Is it because God allows it? Is it because God can't stop it? What are the reasons? Now, each one of those subjects is a different branch of theodicy. I'm going to touch on some of these. I'm not going to give a college lecture on how these all work and, and all that. We could talk forever on that. But I want you to have a basic understanding of it. I'm going to try and make it as... as clear as I can. The first one is called Augustinian Theodicy. Okay, Augustine, right? We know him from, from many different historical things. This is his version of Theodicy, and here's what it is. It, Augustinian Theodicy typically asserts that God is perfect. Okay, we're on the same page there. That he created the world out of nothing. Okay, still we're good. And that evil is the result of humanity's original sin. All right, probably not going to find a lot of argument there. The entry of evil into the world is a consequence of original sin, and its continued presence in the world is due to humans' misuse of free will. And then the last part of this, God's goodness remains perfect and without responsibility for evil or suffering. Now, I will tell you, parts of this... I agree with. I don't agree with all of it. And there are other, other reasons why, and, and we'll go into them as we go into more chapters. But here's the thing. God's goodness remains perfect and without responsibility for evil and suffering. That goes back to the original illustration I showed you of God just turning his back. You failed. I can't have anything to do with that. I'm going to turn my back, and whatever happens behind me is up to you. It absolves God of any responsibility or any part. Not that we need to absolve God of anything. But remember how I said that God can and will use our pain and suffering to draw us closer to him. He'll use our pain and suffering to elevate us to a place where we never even would have gone on our own. That indicates to me that God may not be the cause of it, but God surely is involved in it. And we'll talk more about that later. I won't pretend to tell you everything there is to know about such a complex issue. People have been debating that forever. But I just want you to think about it differently. God knows beforehand how we're going to react. Do you think that when Job, we'll see in coming chapters, when Job and the devil are basically using... Uh, a, when God and the devil are using Job as a pawn and they make a bet essentially over Job, do you think the devil took a sucker bet? Because God knew. God already knew that Job was going to act a certain way. He doesn't make him act that way, but he knows what he's going to do. The devil thinks he can be like God and the devil thinks he knows everything that God does, but he doesn't know. To the devil, it's a bet. I'll bet you 
I, I had great success in the garden. Look what I did to Adam and Eve. I'll bet you I can get Job too. And God's like, okay, try it. And he knows full well what the outcome is going to be. So he uses that outcome to teach the enemy a lesson. He uses that outcome to elevate Job. And so something we see is just a bad, horrible thing, God is using in more ways than we could possibly understand. We'll talk more as we go into coming chapters. So now back to Job, though. Looking at his life so far, looking at what you know of Job so far, can you see an area where he needed correction? Can you see an area where he was failing in his life and needed God to somehow uh, slap him back to his senses? Can you see any areas where he's lacking in his relationship with God or with his kids? I can't. I can't, just on what we know here. And so if you also answered no to that, I think your mindset is right where it needs to be for looking at the rest of what happens to Job here for the rest of our study. See, I believe that growing in our relationship with God and becoming more like Christ is not something that just gently happens. It doesn't happen as you're sleeping overnight and you're slowly transformed. It happens in a crucible of heat and of pounding and of pain quite often. That's where growth happens. And that's exactly what we're going to see. See, I've, I have this picture that it's much like when a blacksmith forges a weapon. See, when a blacksmith forges a weapon, he takes soft, mild steel, it's called, and he'll hammer it into shape. But he also heats it. He heats it red hot and then will quench it in a process called tempering. And that makes the steel harder. And it makes it more suitable for its purpose. See, without the heat and the pounding that it goes through, it'll look the part. You could make a sword that's soft and it looks the part, but as soon as you use it, it will fail. It will not stand up to what its purpose is. And Job absolutely looked the part. He looked the part, but the question is, the question the devil had is, can he hold up when the heat's turned up? When he really faces the battle, can he hold up? So I have this image again. I, I got a picture of it here. This is a blacksmith, obviously. He's got the anvil down below, the hammer up top, and the red-hot steel being fashioned into something in the middle right there. See, I picture in this image right here, I think God represents the hammer. The devil is the anvil down below, and there's poor Job in the middle. He is red-hot, and he is getting hammered. And this is what's happening to him. But the end result of this will be a weapon that will do damage to the purposes of the enemy. Through this, Job is being forged into something that is exactly what God needs it to be. Sure, he was good before. There was nothing wrong with him. But in order to be the weapon that God needs him to be, he needs to go through some pounding and some heat. Now, if this were a TV movie, this is where the commercial would happen. Because we are, up until this point, the first five verses are what's happening to Job and who Job is here on earth. Basically, his life and a description of that. Earthly things. Verse 6, we're going to talk about uh, chapter 1, verse 6 through 13 next week. And this is when the scene shifts from earth to heaven. Beginning next week, we're in heaven, and we see these dialogues that happen there. So study that if you want to next week. Again, Job, 6, uh, Job 1, 6 through 13, to prepare for that. But let's just pray that God would use what we talked about today to help forge us. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that although at first glance it might be confusing, it might be hidden, it might be difficult to find your heart in it. Lord, you have given us the Holy Spirit to illuminate those things in our lives. So, Lord, I pray that whoever is reading, 
reading the word on the pages, the Logos word of God, reading those things, that, that those words would jump off the page in a way that they never had before. I pray that those who heard this teaching today, that you would speak to them through your spirit. You would speak to them and show them what this means for their life. What are they going through now? What are we about to go through that you are using in our lives to prepare us for something higher, something greater than we could ever imagine? And Father, we pray that with confidence because we know that your promise is that you have plans for us and they are not for evil and they are not for harm, but that you love us. So let us see your love and whether we understand it or not, understand your heart and that you have a purpose for everything that happens. Nothing is beyond your reach. Nothing is beyond your power. Father, you will use it all for our good. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together now as the worship team comes up. If you have your supplies in the back, grab those. If you're at home, whatever you have, let's take and celebrate communion together. <clears throat> you know, a lot of people with communion, they, they view it as a solemn ceremony. And there's absolutely a gravity to it. But I use the word celebrate in this case because I think it is cause for celebration. For knowing through what Jesus endured on the cross, through him giving himself for you, this system of sacrifice has been done once and for all on your behalf. And if you accept that sacrifice of Christ, take the bread. And the blood of Christ, it sounds, it sounds so dark. Like the book of Job itself, we're, we're taking the blood, it sounds, it sounds unnecessary. But by taking the blood of Christ, you are accepting the new covenant. The new covenant that has been in evidence ever since the very beginning. God's purpose has been to show us how our efforts are not going to make us righteous. It is the blood of Christ that covers us. And if you accept that covering and accept that new covenant, take the blood. Lord, we thank you that despite our best efforts, you love us. Despite our best efforts, you see us as your perfect children. And that's through nothing that we've done. It's through who you are. And we thank you for who you are. We praise you this day and every day. Amen. Thank you, guys.